Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll kick things off right after this. Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group is committed to helping Britain recover by supporting the people, businesses and communities of the UK through the challenges ahead. Everyone has a plan, said the boxer Mike Tyson, until they get punched in the mouth. And if you've ever watched the launch of a big government policy go badly wrong, then you'll probably have a fair idea what he's talking about. All those weeks and months of planning, the big announcement in the House of Commons, everything seems to be going swimmingly. And then there's a call from the chief whip or an urgent message from Downing Street. Or maybe you just pick up the next day's newspapers and whack right in the mouth. Something you missed, something you overlooked. Something you never dreamed was going to be an issue until suddenly it's the only issue in town. We've all seen different government policies unravel from time to time. But in British politics, it's rarely as dramatic as when it's the centrepiece of the government's fiscal agenda, the budget, which falls apart before our eyes. Governments have to pass budgets to raise money to keep the country going. It's one of the most important things they do. A government which struggles to get its budget through is not a happy one. In fact, often... It's a government which is not long for this world. So, those Treasury ministers and officials currently working on next week's budget, be warned, there is no sinking feeling quite like the moment a spending plan you've worked on for months simply crumbles on contact with the real world. I remember thinking, uh, you can just tell there's a tone in the room and you think, oh, that's going to be the big thing that everyone wants to talk about. This is Poppy Trowbridge, a former special advisor to Philip Hammond, recalling the moment his first budget as Chancellor began to falter in the all-important media briefing immediately after his speech. And once you've had your 25th question about exactly the same thing, I mean, you know, if you can't get the hint that that's going to be the front page the next day, then you're, you're missing a trick. Hammond, you may recall, had in 2017 cooked up a plan to increase the national insurance contributions of self-employed workers, bringing them closer in line with those of company employees. Entitlements. Such dramatically different treatment of two people earning essentially the same undermines the fairness of our tax system. For the Chancellor, this was an issue of basic equity. It didn't even raise that much money. But for the media, and crucially for certain Tory MPs, it was the shattering of a solemn promise. The Conservatives, of course, had pledged at the 2015 election not to put up income tax, VAT or national insurance contributions. Yet here they were, two years later albeit under new leadership, doing exactly that. The issue was about a new Conservative government coming in and distancing themselves from a manifesto that had been written by other people. And there was a sense that it might have smacked a sort of lack of accountability on that front for what had come before. And I think that was something people just weren't going to let this new administration get away with. Indeed, they were not. I remember being in that media briefing on the other side of the table from Poppy as dozens of political journalists crowded round the Chancellor's small team of staff firing off questions about the budget. Now, I've covered quite a few of these briefings and they're always intense affairs, 60 or 70 hacks packed into a small room just off the Commons chamber. They start as soon as the Chancellor finishes his speech and can run for up to two hours. I've never seen the mood as hostile as it was that day with all attention focused on the Chancellor's decision to break a manifesto promise. The Treasury, in truth, had no real answer. We were expecting it to be noticed, 
but not to unravel in the way it did. And as you know, you had to U-turn on it. It was seen as the right thing to do, a fair thing to do. But the political mistake was in not fully embracing the link with a manifesto that wasn't written by this prime minister and by this chancellor per se. The following day's front pages were every bit as bad as Trowbridge feared. Tories break tax vow, yelled the Daily Telegraph. No laughing matter, bellowed the Daily Mail, alongside a picture of a grinning Philip Hammond. Spite Van Man, raged the sun. And that was just the Tory supporting press. We, of course, have been working on these issues and thinking about them for months. And I think sometimes it's not understood that it comes across as new and therefore more shocking, noticeable to the outside public. So that is, to me, a sort of classic insider baseball mistake where you're so used to working on something you forget that it's actually new to to someone else and you know now I would do it very differently and I think we would aim to have this conversation openly publicly with focus groups in the press to take the temperature of people's feeling toward this sort of change. With Tory MPs breaking ranks to criticise the decision Hammond and his boss Theresa May who'd inherited a Commons majority of just 17 from their predecessors quickly realised they simply did not have the support they needed. The policy was dropped one week later. Surely the fastest ever rewriting of a modern day budget. It was sad, but I think people are quite practical. I think the sadness, let's just be clear, was on the idea that it was an unfairness that this policy was an attempt to remedy, which wasn't going to be remedied. But really sophisticated, experienced politicians, which, by the way, Theresa May and Philip Hammond were at that time, understand that some things don't go right and the best thing to do is to own up to it, change it and apologise for it, which is what they did. Now, the 2017 budget will be remembered for what happened with the national insurance contributions. I'm guessing on all this process, all this planning, you weren't necessarily thinking that this is the big thing that's happening in this budget, or were you? No, but what I've learned from that process is that there's always going to be a big thing. And you should begin the process with a list of what that could be and then just have a nice little blank space for whatever the journalists, the media want to put in that. Because without a big thing, they've got nothing to rally around. And so you either give them a big thing or they will find a big thing, even if it's not a big thing. Sure enough, the following year, Hammond made sure he had a big thing to announce. In his 2018 budget, he dramatically declared that austerity was finally coming to an end. And in a flash every front page headline was assured. He also cut taxes instead of raising them, invested in infrastructure and was largely cheered by the Tory press. His treasury team could at last rest easy. Well, sort of. Oh, look, you're always terrified something's going to crop up that's going to take over again. But this was a different type of budget. Quite clearly by this point, the Chancellor was more experienced in talking publicly about what his priorities were. So a lot of this was geared towards infrastructure, for example, towards new technology. It was a budget delivered after a period where we'd weathered the storm. So normal service was resumed. And yet what had happened to Philip Hammond in 2017 was hardly unheard of. Plenty of chancellors suffer a budget disaster or two. Some lead to U-turns, others trigger resignations. One even brought down the chancellor himself. But what I want to know is, how can it happen? How can an intricate financial package drawn up in granular detail by Whitehall's finest minds over many months go so badly off kilter the moment it's unveiled to the world? So we'll be asking Ed Balls about the 10p tax fiasco, 
George Osborne about the 2012 Omni Shambles and the Shadow Home Secretary for a Labour Party history lesson. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard and this week on Westminster Insider we're looking at what happens when budgets go wrong and what the current Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, can do to avoid a disaster of his own next week. Budget week is a fun time to be a political journalist for one simple reason. There are millions of great stories kicking around. Budgets contain dozens of spending decisions and policy tweaks, any one of which will get your name in the paper if you could just get someone in government to leak you the details. And guess what? Leak them they do. Sometimes to be helpful, sometimes to be unhelpful, sometimes just to pinch the big announcement off somebody else. As you'll probably see this weekend, the newspapers in the run-up to Budget Day are so packed with details, there's often precious little left for the Chancellor to announce on the day. Well, newsflash, it didn't used to be like this. In days gone by, the contents of the budget were sacrosanct and any leak was treated with the utmost seriousness. This was never better illustrated than in 1947, two years into Clement Attlee's post-war Labour government, when his Chancellor Hugh Dalton had a quiet word with a friendly journalist on Budget Day. The Labour Party historian and Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Thomas Simmons, takes up the story. So this budget is to be delivered at half past three on the 12th of November 1947. Dalton arrives at the House of Commons. He gives John Carvel, lobby correspondent for The Star, some details. And he told him in a single sentence what the principal points would be. No more on tobacco, a penny on beer... Something on dogs and pools, but not on horses. Increase in purchase tax, but only on articles now taxable. Profits tax doubled. Something on dogs and pools, but not on horses. I'm struggling to imagine that one getting Treasury sign-off today. Anyway, it was the scoop of Carvel's life. He'd only approached Dalton for a bit of colour to find out what he'd be drinking when he gave his speech. In those days, famously, chancellors took actual alcohol into the chamber to keep them going through the afternoon. Dalton's tipple of choice, weirdly, was rum and milk. But even that fact was soon forgotten, given what followed. Dalton stands up to speak. Hansard records him starting to speak at 3.32. 3.45, the proposals are published by John Carvel in a newspaper scoop. The star... And to be clear, we're talking about a now-defunct evening paper in London, not the raucous tabloid which has spent the past year trolling Dominic Cummings. Published the details in a fact box on its front page, and it was as if a bomb had gone off under Attlee's government. Dalton had only been scooped by a matter of minutes, but the Prime Minister was furious. Harold Wilson, of course, Labour Prime Minister in the 60s, said that he'd never seen Attlee as rattled as he was during this particular crisis. And when you consider the huge events of that Attlee government, I think that is a really significant statement. Attlee was somebody who abhorred personal scandal. So this deeply troubled him. Dalton does apologise the next day. Dalton's major defence appears to have been, well, I said it off the record. Dalton's apology was not enough. Attlee had already been minded to move the Chancellor as part of a wider reshuffle to shore up his leadership. 
His fate was sealed when Whitehall's top civil servant, the Cabinet Secretary Norman Brooke, argued that speaking off the record was simply no excuse. Dalton resigns. Was he right to resign in those circumstances? I think in this era, yes, he was. This was a very, very different era in terms of the relationship between politicians and the media. Attlee remained horrified by it. I'm just thinking of the current era and speaking as a lobby journalist myself, and I've covered quite a few budgets over the last nine or ten years, and you know what it's like now, Nick. Things get briefed out in advance. You know, policies appear in the Sunday papers. You know, the idea of a chancellor resigning because a few of the measures came out beforehand, or indeed a few minutes beforehand, would just be extraordinary now. It was a completely different era. And I think if we applied the Dalton standard to the modern day, there wouldn't be many people left in quite a few recent governments. Amazingly, the 1947 budget, the only one which has ever led to the resignation of a Chancellor, was not even the most explosive of Attlee's time in office. Four years later, his third Chancellor, Hugh Gateskill, delivered a spending plan so controversial it split his party in two and ultimately left a divided Labour out of power for more than a decade. Stop me, won't you, if you've heard this one before. This budget on the 10th of April 1951, which I believe is really the marker of the first major Labour division in the post-war era, and it's a budget of personal rivalry between Bevan and Gateskill, for one of them to be the successor to Attlee, And there were massive issues of principle at stake as well. And the future direction of the Labour Party, should it, having achieved so much in six years, move to consolidate that and recognise that there'd be a greater desire in the 1950s to move from the system of wartime controls to private consumer affluence? Or should it try to continue and further nationalise other parts of the economy? Hugh Gateskill very much on the right of the party, had drawn up plans to start charging for NHS products such as spectacles and false teeth. The actual amount of money being raised was small, but for the Labour left, this was a Rubicon never to be crossed. Senior ministers, including Gateskill's great leadership rival Nye Bevan and another future Labour leader, Harold Wilson, threatened to quit. Attlee, in hospital with an ulcer, received each man at his bedside on budget day morning trying to broker a compromise but to no avail. Back in Parliament, his de facto deputy, Herbert Morrison, was doing the same. The day of the budget must be one of the most dramatic days. Two minutes before Gateskill got up to give the budget at 3.30, Herbert Morrison persuaded him to strike the sentence out of the budget that gave the date the new charges would be introduced to try to leave, even then, some room for compromise. But compromise could not be found. Gateskill pressed ahead with the new National Health Service bill, and Bevan, Wilson, and a third senior minister, John Freeman, all resigned. The second reading of that bill, which is when Bevan was forced to vote one way or the other, came on the 23rd of April, and that's when, obviously, Bevan makes his resignation speech and then rapidly Freeman and Wilson follow behind. And the Attlee government, of course, falls in the October of the same year. Did Gateskill know what he was doing? Did he realise the bomb he was setting off in his cabinet and in his party? I've no doubt that he did. And this was a battle to the finish 
between Gateskill and Bevan. It was a, a battle over the future of the Labour Party that was personified in these two figures who everybody knew were the leaders of the next generation in the Labour Party. And Gateskill, of course, ends up as Labour leader, but Labour end up out of power for an awfully long time. How much of what happened subsequently can you draw back to this budget and this split? The budget crystallises the split that dominates the early 1950s in the Labour Party. That rivalry between Bevan and Gateskill undoubtedly contributes to Labour being out of power for 13 years after that. It's worth noting that Philip Hammond, Hugh Dalton and Hugh Gateskill were all relatively new chancellors when they delivered their ill-fated budgets. But experience, as we shall see, is no bar to a blunder. After the break, I'll be talking to TV star, celebrity teacher, Harvard professor, semi-professional dancer, talented pianist, oh, and former Treasury Minister, Ed Balls, about his old boss Gordon Brown's final budget as Chancellor in 2007 and the fallout that would dog his first year as Prime Minister. We'll also hear from former Chancellor George Osborne about pasty taxes and the 2012 Omni Shambles, and from former Tory MP Heidi Allen on what it's like to lead a budget rebellion. Stay with us. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Small and medium-sized businesses have been hit hard by the pandemic. Lloyd's Banking Group brought business leaders together with policymakers and experts around the UK for the big conversation. A series of roundtables focused on identifying what is needed to help Britain recover. The conversations revealed how businesses in every nation and region have adapted to the crisis by embracing new ways to serve their customers. Lloyd's Banking Group will continue to help build a sustainable recovery and support businesses to grow in the years ahead. No Chancellor since the grand old man himself, William Gladstone, has delivered as many budgets as Gordon Brown. My report to the country is of rising employment and rising investment. Eleven times between 1997 and 2007, Brown rose at the dispatch box to deliver an annual spending plan. And this is a budget to expand prosperity and fairness for Britain's families. And his experience, his attention to detail and his, frankly, terrifying work ethic made him a formidable figure in the Treasury. Gordon Brown used to call me round the day after the budget, and we would talk about um, how it landed. And loads of times he would say, so, next year. And I would say, Gordon, we have 364 days before next year's budget. Can't we just have a day off? But Gordon didn't really believe in day offs. This is Ed Balls, who worked alongside Gordon Brown in the Treasury for almost a decade, first as a senior advisor and later as economic secretary. So I think for a chancellor... You're thinking all year about the challenges in the economy, the policy decisions you're going to need to make. So it really does consume the whole year for a Chancellor in the Treasury. And there are very many officials in the Treasury who only work on the budget and will spend the whole year either preparing for the budget or dealing with the consequences of the last one. Ed Balls thinks Brown's greatest budget achievement was to succeed where Philip Hammond would fail nearly 20 years later in successfully pushing through a hike in national insurance contributions, in this case to boost funding for the NHS. Crucially, Brown, unlike Hammond, had spent months preparing the groundwork. I think for me the most important budget is the 2002 budget when we announced the national insurance tax rise and the long-term 
big increases in investment from the NHS. This was a government choosing to propose a tax rise for a hugely important purpose, which we knew by that point we had won public support for, which had taken months of effort and lots of argument and challenge across the political spectrum. We knew that we were doing something very unusual. We were going to win the argument for spending money to improve a public service with a tax rise, the national insurance rise. And the fact that it didn't really figure in the 2005 election at all as an issue, and that by 2010, David Cameron was making a pledge, he'd cut the deficit, not the NHS. It was that budget in 2002, which I think secured the consensus around a properly funded public national health service. And when you're announcing something like that, are you terrified that it's all about to go wrong? Or had you got to a point politically by the time the budget was announced in 2002 that you know you were pretty confident that it was going to go exactly as it did? Well, the discussion of exactly what tax rise to do went up to the wire. We were still having discussions with Jeremy Hayward and Tony Blair and Gordon a week before with Tony saying, do we really need to do this? I mean, the Sun and the Mail had been vitriolic in attacking what we were doing. And I remember going down with Gordon to see the editors a few months before and them saying we're against this and us saying your readers will support what we're doing and don't be on the wrong side of this because we are going to win this argument. And win the argument they did. But even after a decade in the Treasury, with all his experience, Brown still managed to drop an absolute howler in his final budget as Chancellor. The headline announcement of that 2007 spending plan, chopping 2p off the basic rate of income tax, was seen initially as a triumph, especially given he'd saved the big announcement for the very last line of his speech, the ultimate rabbit in the hat. I will from next April cut the basic rate of income tax from 22 pence to 20 pence. But what few had fully appreciated was that Brown was partly funding the measure by abolishing the lowest income tax rate, the 10p band, which most helped lowest earners. Brown and his team knew they were taking a calculated risk. We had done this many times by this point, so we really knew what we were doing, or at least what had to be done. For every budget, you have months of meetings where you interrogate the detail of every budget measure. Are there problems? Are there flaws? And we were doing all that work in the run-up to the 2007 budget. But Gordon had a view about what he wanted to do. And that was conflicting with what all of our normal budget work was saying. Gordon wanted to cut the basic rate of income tax to 20p. He wanted that to be the last thing he did as a chancellor. He wanted to be a simplifying, reforming chancellor. I think the politics of that, he liked reaching into the centre ground just before Tony Blair stepped down. And all of our detailed work and modelling says that there would be a particular group who would lose. And we knew that. It wasn't avoidable. And Ed Miliband and I and the team and the modelling all said there was this problem. And in the end, Gordon decided that he could absorb that, he could deal with that. Unlike most budget blunders, this one was a slow burn. Initially, the 2007 budget was seen as a masterstroke. And it wasn't until the following spring with Brown now installed as Prime Minister, that those affected by the loss of the 10p tax rate started to feel the effects. Pressure mounted, the Tories made hay, and in the end, Brown was forced to climb down, spending billions topping up the incomes of those hardest hit. It was a problem. 
because there was a group of low-paid people who were losing, who had voted Labour, and Gordon Brown was the great guy who was on the side of hard work and rewarding hard work for working people. And suddenly there was a group of them who were losing. And I remember, you know, I was on the doorstep for the weeks before the local elections in 2008, and it was coming up time and time again. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, because the Daily Mail were writing about it and whipping it up. It was a truth. It was a reality. And I think one of the things you learn about budgets and politics is that however political and message orientated you are as a chancellor and it's really important to do that very very well to think about the wider government strategy it starts from the reality of the budget measures and the economic outcomes if you don't pass the chancellorial economic budget test the politics then starts to fray and can collapse at bull's great rival george osborne was no stranger to a budget calamity either So littered with unpopular measures was his 2012 budget that it became known as the Omni-Shambles, because sometimes only a phrase lifted directly from the thick of it will do. What had looked to officials in the Treasury like a series of small, sensible tweaks to VAT rules and tax thresholds proved politically disastrous out in the real world, each one receiving its own special branding in the subsequent media coverage. First, we had the granny tax, a cut in personal allowances for the over-65s, Then we had the caravan tax, the imposition of VAT on static holiday homes. Then there was the charity tax, the church's tax, and most famous of all, the pasty tax, adding VAT to the sale of hot baked goods for the first time. Westminster went wild. Turning up the heat on the government's proposed pasty tax. Bakers take to Westminster. We don't agree with it on our savouries and that's why we're here to support the petitions that everybody has signed in our shops. When's the last time you bought a pasty in Greggs? I, I can't remember the last time I bought a pasty in Greggs to answer your... Well, that time was Sumsy too. I love a hot pasty. I think the last one I bought was from the uh, West Cornwall Pasty Company. These were great days to be a political journalist. It was as if someone in the Treasury had designed a budget specifically to upset as many different interest groups as possible. There really was something for everyone. The Sun raged about the pasties, the Telegraph raged about grannies, the Mail raged about churches and the Guardian raged about charities. I was working for the Yorkshire Post at the time and soon learned that most of the nation's static caravans were constructed in our patch, so even we had our own issue to campaign on. The pressure on Osborne was immense. Eventually, inevitably, he U-turned on almost every measure. But the way Osborne tells it now, the problem was less the budget itself than the way all the best bits had leaked out beforehand. Budgets in the past used to be completely last-minute affairs. So at two, three, four in the morning, chancellors and prime ministers would argue about what should be in it and big tax changes would come in and out. I have to say I brought a bit of order to the process because there's this organization, the OBR, which has to sign off everything, cost everything. And that meant the chancellor couldn't enter into the budget things late in the day. You couldn't have a last minute row with the prime minister. It's much more orderly. The, the danger is the budget's basically all agreed about a week beforehand. It's all done. And I would then spend the weekend writing my speech myself. I'd sit in my study in number 11 with my laptop and write the speech myself with this absolute terror that this sort of thing was out there and it might leak. And if things start to leak from the budget, it's a disaster, not because, you know, there's some great thing around budget secrecy much anymore. It's just politically, it's so damaging. And often the things that leak 
are the kind of goodies, the things you know that are going to get your side cheering, that hopefully are going to get the public supporting the budget. What you're left with is the gristle on the day, which is which is not great. He's not naming names, but Osborne clearly blames his coalition partners, the Lib Dems, for what happened in 2012. You know, what's interesting about that budget is a lot of the key decisions leaked beforehand. Uh, and I know the source, it was we were a coalition government at the time, but it just meant uh, on budget day, I didn't have much left except for a tax on pasties. And that that was a problem. If Osborne was blindsided by the hostile media coverage of his VAT changes, it's perhaps because his attention was focused elsewhere. He'd been obsessing about the political fallout of what he considered to be the big-ticket item, a controversial tax cut for Britain's highest earners, at a time when public services were being shredded and low-income families were struggling after the crash. The budget had this central measure, which was incredibly difficult, not very popular, but I thought essential to kind of get enterprise going in Britain again and to show that Britain was open to business. That was to get rid of Labour's 50p tax rate. And that was the most difficult thing to do. That was politically the hardest thing to get the Liberal Democrats to agree to find a way to sell it to a country in the middle of uh, hard times. As it turned out, Osborne's cut to the top rate of tax would endure. His pasty tax would not. In all the discussions about the budget beforehand, what we were trying to tax was hot chickens in supermarkets. The word pasty never never crossed my desk before before the budget. It was only after the budget. I was like, what do you mean it affects pasties as well? So, uh, you know, I, I thought I was doing rotisserie chickens in Sainsbury's uh, to try and save the uh, local takeaway shop down the road that was paying VAT. Osborne, of course, turned things around completely after his 2012 disaster putting himself on a diet, getting a trendy new haircut and eventually masterminding the Tories' first outright election victory in more than 20 years. But governing alone would bring its own problems, chiefly trying to deliver a manifesto with only the narrowest of Commons majorities. Having promised an eye-watering £12 billion in welfare cuts, Osborne's attempt to actually deliver that pledge in the summer of 2015 soon hit problems. Attention fell on his changes to tax credits, which economists warned would cost millions of low-income families more than £1,000 a year. Heidi Allen was a newly elected Tory MP, still finding her feet in Parliament and yet to make her maiden speech in the Commons. When I first became an MP and arrived at Westminster, I was bitterly disappointed. I was so unimpressed by how everything was just so heavily choreographed and there didn't seem to be any independent thought. Just nobody seemed to be saying what they were thinking. So I hadn't actually even made a maiden speech at all. I refused to do it. And in the meantime, I'd got myself onto the Work and Pension Select Committee, which very rapidly had upskilled me and made me more knowledgeable about people living in poverty. And I remember thinking as the budget was kind of coming or the debate was coming to a crescendo and things were getting livelier in the press. I remember coming home one night and writing a speech on the tube thinking, you know what, I've got something to say now because it needs saying. And clearly everybody's whispering it you know, on Tory corridors, but nobody's saying it. Alan broke her silence in the Commons chamber in October 2015, nearly six full months after being elected. Normally, the convention with maiden speeches is to pay tribute to your predecessor Describe in flowery language what a wonderful place your constituency is and how proud you are to have been elected. And that's about it. Alan instead used hers to deliver a full-throated attack on the government's flagship welfare policy. As these proposals stand, too many people will be adversely affected. Something must give. For those of us proud enough to call ourselves compassionate conservatives, it must not 
be the backs of the working families we purport to serve. There were about, I don't know, maybe 10 MPs in the chamber, so I thought there's nobody here listening. <laughs> Who's going to pay the blindest bit of attention? And then my husband picked me up from the train station that night and said, Heidi, have you got any idea? You've been on the news, six o'clock in the tenant. I'm like, well, have I? But brilliant, it had the effect. Were you nervous standing up to make a maiden speech like that? No, not nervous at all. In my view, you take a job like that to say the difficult things and to be, you know, a moral compass if needs be. You had gone into the 2015 election on a manifesto that said we will, you know, cut welfare by 12 billion quid. So you must have had an inkling that something like this was going to happen. Yes, but at the end of the day, equally, it seemed to me that the Tory party had deliberately wanted to bring in people from the outside that had real world experience, had run businesses. So I'm not there just to say what I'm supposed to say. My view, and I held that true right to the last day that I was an MP. And if it means you don't get promoted, it means you don't get the milk past you in the tea room, then all too bad. Other disaffected Tory MPs were railing against the cuts too. And belatedly, it began to dawn on Tory supporting newspapers like The Sun, which had initially cheered the budget to the rafters, that its own readers would be hit hard. The campaign gathered pace and the pressure mounted. In his November financial statement, Osborne abandoned the cuts altogether. I've listened to the concerns, I hear and understand them, and because I've been able to announce today an improvement in the public finances, the simplest thing to do is not to phase these changes in, but to avoid them altogether. Heidi Allen remembers sharing the moment with her friend, the Tory MP Bernard Jenkin. I'd gone to him perhaps a few days before and asked him for some advice about, you know, is it the thing to do in your maiden speech? And him sort of saying to me, well, no, it's not, but you have to go with your heart. If, you th- if you've got something that you think needs saying, say it. And I remember hearing George Osborne stand at the dispatch box, delivering this and seeing Bernard, right, I was standing up, I didn't have a seat, seeing him right at the other end of the chamber and just blowing a kiss to him and thinking, flipping hell, we've done it. And do you think they've learned the lesson that you need to keep an eye on, on your backbenchers and listen to what they're saying before they start announcing big changes like that? I'd like to say yes, but with the size of the majority, they've got a doubt they need to, really. That's one of the reasons I stood down, because it is a different landscape now. It really is. I'd like to think the Red Wall Tories will stand up. You know, their constituents that did not vote Tory, had never voted Tory before, have put them there like I was put there, in my view, to be that voice for them. They've got a rare opportunity to influence the government, and I hope they take it. So watch out, Rishi Sunak. As Heidi Allen knows well, and plenty of former chancellors can testify, the opponents you really need to worry about when unveiling a budget, even if you do have a decent majority, are not those across the chamber, but those behind you, on your own back benches, or even in your own cabinet. If the chancellor is wise, he'll have a pretty clear idea of exactly how the measures he announces will go down among different groups of Tory MPs. Months of groundwork may be necessary, with the press and the wider public too for a Chancellor planning something especially controversial. Sunak also needs a clear story to tell or a big-ticket item to unveil on the day to keep control of the media narrative. And he must be wary of badly-timed leaks. Although it's unlikely a story slipped to the Sunday Times this weekend is going to actually bring him down, like poor old Hugh Dalton. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, it's attention to detail that counts. How will the budget affect real families in the real world? It doesn't matter if your policy changes raise relatively little revenue, like charges for NHS spectacles or taxes on Cornish pasties, or whether they're bigger ticket items, like abolishing the 10p tax rate. 
What's important is having a clear idea of precisely who in society will be affected by what you're doing, and how. Oh, and don't ever think you'll simply be able to spin your way out of trouble. You can never, ever, in the end, succeed in spinning or manipulating a budget away from the truth and the reality. Ed Balls again. So many people are analysing it in detail, experts in the media and in the, the kind of wider community, but also this directly affects people in, the, in their lives. The child benefit they receive, the tax they pay, the local service. And a technocratic chancellor who only thinks about the numbers and doesn't support the wider political effort of the government is a disaster. I mean, it's a disaster for prime ministers. But on the other hand, if you become political and messaging and strategic and you haven't paid attention to the the detail, that's also when things unravel. And that's what happened to George Osborne in 2012. And it's what happened to Gordon Brown in 2007, 2008. They were the dominant figure in domestic policy in the government. But they didn't pay enough attention to the detail. Even so, as George Osborne can testify, these things are impossibly hard to predict. Despite his chastening experience with pasties in 2012, Osborne pressed ahead four years later with another controversial revenue hike on a popular foodstuff, this time a tax on sugary drinks. This might have proved equally unpopular with a hard-pressed public who objected to paying more for a can of Coke from the supermarket. Instead... Presented as a bold step in tackling Britain's obesity crisis, the decision was warmly received. Everyone told me, inside the Treasury, inside Downing Street, don't do a sugar tax. You're mad, right? This is a tax on Coca-Cola. You've already been burnt for taxing pasties. And the only person who thought we should do something was David Cameron. And the two of us, I remember, alone in our office without all our advisors, said, it's just the right thing to do. This country's got an obesity problem. Here's something simple we can do. It's not going to stop people drinking Coca-Cola. It's just going to mean Coca-Cola puts less sugar into their drink. And that tax not only got lots of other countries following it, but it endures and people want to build on it. And there's a huge amount of evidence that it started to work. So if I would point to one thing that, you know, outside all the kind of trying to turn around the economy and deal with the public finances and so on, all that stuff, the thing that I went out on a limb for was the sugar tax. And, you know, it's one of those classic things also with the budget. I thought I'd have so much trouble with it and it got universally applauded. So, <laughs> Well, not quite universally applauded. North of the border, Osborne's sugar tax forced the manufacturer of Iron Brew to change its century-old recipe and thousands of Scots erupted in outrage, blaming Westminster for meddling with their national drink Petitions were signed. Out-of-date cans of the old full-fat iron brew started selling on eBay for hundreds of pounds. It's probably a bit of a stretch to describe the sugar tax as another nail in the coffin for the union. But still, one thing is clear. With budgets, more than any other aspect of government policy, the law of unintended consequences is always going to apply. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and leave us a comment if you've got the time. This episode was produced by the brilliant Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my managing editor is James Randerson. 
I'll be back next week. See you then.